Let's pray. God, thank you for what you've done. We just celebrated communion, which is our reminder. Jesus commanded us to remember him, to remember what he has done for us, to remember what in your great love it was in your will that he do. God, help us to remember as we look at a man named Elijah who seemed to have an awful short memory of what you've done. Help us to remember the ways that you've been faithful in the past. Help us to recognize the ways that you are faithful in our present and help us to realize going forward that you are our hope, you are our future, that it is in Jesus that we can uh, wake up and face every new day despair. So God, we give you thanks for who you are, for this opportunity to gather and to worship you and this chance that we have to look at your word for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Anybody run track in high school? You know what one of those is? It's a baton. I was too slow. I never got to carry a baton. But I know there were fast people that did. We're going to talk about batons. Well, you'll understand a little bit in in a little bit what we're going to talk about with batons. I want to start with this, though, because we're going to look at two men, Elijah and Elisha. Very similar. Couldn't Couldn't be more different. Elijah, right? Thank you, Deb. One of you followed Cindy and Elijah. See, now you all learned. Good. We're talking about passing the baton. What happens when a man or woman of God reaches the point in their life when they realize it's time to pass the baton? How do we even know when that time arrives? How do we know who to pass the baton to? Maybe the biggest and most important question is, Are we doing anything with our lives that is worthy to be passed on to someone else that they just simply can't live without? Are the people who will come after us, are they going to be hungry to know or to experience or to understand something that God has given to you? That's what we're really talking about is legacy. Legacy is... What it is that we leave behind. God gives us all this stuff in our lives and we think that it's ours and so we save it and we put it away in a closet and we do all kinds of stuff with it. But it's all God's gift to us to steward and it becomes a part of our legacy or it just becomes a part of our past. We're going to talk about legacy. What you leave behind. Are you living in a way that is intentionally passing on your life's work and passion to others? Do they know that? Who are the others? Are you intentionally passing along your faith? Are you living in such a way that the faith that you have in Jesus, you're sharing with other people so that it can continue on in generations to come. Maybe it's something you've thought about. If you've written up a will, you've thought about this because you had to name uh, beneficiaries. That's the word that we use in this kind of discussion, right? So if you've, if you've ever written a will, and if you haven't, you probably should, you've thought about who your things are going to go to. If you have life insurance on you, you've had to name a beneficiary. Who gets the benefits, the proceeds of the money when you pass on? See, because so often life and even death is just about money. But that's not legacy. That's a very, very different thing. If you've got investments, you've had to think about it. If you own a business, I sure hope you've thought about it. If you have any children at all, I really hope you're thinking about it. If you're still young, 
Maybe you're at a point where you don't have a a full-time job yet. You're just beginning your life. You get to consider legacy in a very different way. See, I'm at the age where I'm looking back thinking, what am I going to leave behind? What what is it that that I'm going to leave behind for the people that God has, has charged me to care for in this life, wife and kids? If you're young, you get to think about creating your legacy. You get to think about building it. You get to think about the life that you're going to live, that you're going to be remembered for, because that's legacy. Legacy is what we believed in and what we lived for. See, God even has a succession plan or a passing of the baton in the church. He built it into the very foundation of the Christian church. And it's a word that yeah, we don't always like so much because it, it, it wells up in us things that we think we're not qualified for. See, God's passing of the baton plan is called discipleship. And I know you hear that word and you go, oh, ho, ho, the effort, discipline. Knowledge, I'm not smart enough, I don't know enough, I'm not faithful enough, I can't disciple anybody. Discipleship, quite simply, is passing along the baton of your faith to someone else by living and growing in faith alongside them. It isn't about having all the answers, it isn't about having your Bible memorized, it isn't about knowing more than they do, it's about the willingness to pass the baton of faith along to someone else. And really, it doesn't have anything to do with age. It's got to do with spiritual age. It could be someone who's older than you, and you've been a Christian for exactly three days longer than they have. You're set up to be prepared to pass along the baton. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. This life is not about fighting the battles that we choose for ourselves. It's not about the things that keep us up at night, the things that stress us out over, the things that we don't have enough of. It's about fighting God's good fight. It's about running this race that Paul refers to as our life. Our life is a race, and it's about keeping the faith and growing in our faith in Jesus. So let's talk about this race for a little bit. Why is a baton an appropriate thing to do? Well, if you ran in college or high school, if you ran track and you were a part of a relay team, only one of you on your team, and there's typically four, only one of you gets to carry this at a time. But there is a moment between legs, whether it was a 4x100 or a 4x400, there's that point where you have to pass it off. And that's the thing we're talking about. There's these predetermined boundaries. You have to begin the pass off within one and and you have to complete successfully the pass off in the other. And at any point during the race in the handoff or while you're running, if at any point you drop the baton, the race for you and your team is over. There's no picking it up and trying to make up the time. In a race, That baton has to go with you and be cared for all the way to the end. Did a little internet search this week on worst relay race baton drops. I wouldn't race out and do that. I've seen the Olympics. I watched the faster kids in high school. I kind of know how a relay race works. But I wanted to see what happens when the baton gets dropped. And I did that for this reason. Because I wanted to make sure that other highly trained athletes that had devoted a lot of their life to this dropped the baton just like we do in the church. Because as Christians, folks, we're dropping the baton. We're dropping the baton in a big way. And, and I saw some really fabulous drops. 
I mean, Olympic runners and, and national and world championship runners that just one outran the other or they fell or they just flat out dropped at one of them. Guy was running and poof, the thing just went flying out of his hand like the baton was going to finish the race, not him. Every one of those teams was done. The race was over. Now think about what's happening with us in the Christian church. We're dropping the baton. We don't have to, but we choose to. And I think maybe the most stark example in my mind, for all the places in the world that people send missionaries, there's one that America ignores. Maybe one of the most developed, technologically advanced, uh, financially stable countries on earth. It's Japan. Less than 1% of the Japanese people are Christian. Less than 1%. But do you know that the Japanese Christian church sends more missionaries to the United States than the United States sends to Japan? We've dropped the baton. And we've done it all over the place. Uh, We've we've even let our kids just run around out there and, and, and we hope the best for them. We're dropping the baton. We've got our reasons and we've got our excuses and we've got our other priorities and our justifications. But what we don't have is a good reason. So today we're going to look at two men in the Old Testament. One of them dropped the baton. He quit the race. And the other one sold out everything in order to be in this race. Both of them are prophets. That means they were men that were called by God to speak God's truth to the people of their day. Prophets were not generally people who were much loved. They were people who, if not feared, they were generally hated. Because often what they did is they went in and spoke God's truth to a group of people who were living a lie. And people don't like to hear God's truth when we're living a lie. See, but the prophet's purpose was given by God to speak a message that God hoped would cause the people to recognize their sin and that they would turn around and come back to living in God's truth. Well, thousands of years later, things haven't changed much. See, the Holy Spirit still gives people the gift of prophecy. There are still prophets out there that speak for God. And people today are still living in a lie. It's called sin. And God, because God doesn't change, still wants people to come back to him. Prophets, they're they're not predictors of the future. Usually what prophets are, and sometimes preachers become, is potsters. Whenever you've got a big old bowl of life going on and it's, it's not what God has called this group of people to be and a prophet shows up and speaks God's truth, they end up stirring the pot and not everybody likes it. First man was named Elijah. The second man was named Elisha. Elijah had this long history in his life of having a front row seat to the power and the presence of God in a very personal way that you would think he would be excited about who it is that he gets to pass along his lifetime of knowledge and experience and the hard-fought lessons that he's won, the knowledge that he has of God. But that isn't the way it worked with Elijah. If you've got your Bibles with you, it really kind of what we're going to start is First Kings. It's in the middle of Elijah's life. There's this moment where he's going around and he's speaking God's truth. And this man comes up to him and he starts complaining for his wife. It's King Ahab. And Ahab was a wimp. And Jezebel, she was horrible. Jezebel was a bad woman. She was the queen. Uh, she was just not a good lady at all. And what Elijah decided to do is, well, let's, let's make this, uh, this thing happen where we find out whose who's gods 
big G or small g, are real. And they all agree. And so they go to Mount Carmel. Some of you maybe have been to Mount Carmel. David and I have been there a couple of times. It is this big hill. It's not a mountain like the Rockies are, but it's bigger than the rest of the ground around it. Off to the west, you can see great views of the Mediterranean Sea. To the east is the Kishon River and the Jezreel Valley. So up on top of this hill, he decides to have this showdown. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they take their prophets of Baal and their, their prophets of Asherah, 850 between all of them. They had a whole small village of, of priests and prophets for these false religions. And they say, let's have, let's have a final showdown and let's just decide who's God's real. So what they agree to is this. Each group is going to have one bowl. And on top of Mount Carmel, they're going to build an altar and then they're going to fill it with wood and they're going to, they're going to slaughter the bull and they put the bull on top and they're going to call fire down from above. Well, the, the, the prophets of Baal and Jezebel think this is a piece of cake because they knew, or at least they gave credit to Baal for weather, which meant lightning. If we're calling down fire from above, Baal already does that. And so they get started. Elijah says, you go first. There's just one of him. He says, you go first. So they butcher their bowl and they, big, they build the altar and they've got all the wood. And so they start dancing and chanting and doing things and nothing happens. So they start slashing their wrists because that kind of made them hallucinate. And apparently that impressed Baal. I don't know. And they're doing their thing and nothing has happened. The, the sky is just empty. There's a drought going on. There's no fire anywhere. So Elijah starts taunting them. He taunts their God. He makes funny things. Maybe if I make him angry enough, something will happen. Nothing happens. But see, Elijah knew that. Elijah knew the only real God was the God of Israel. See, he had faith in what God could do because he'd seen the power and the presence of God before. And so he doesn't just build an altar. He puts the wood together. He gets 12 stones and he lines it with 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He puts the bowl on top of the wood. It's the middle of a drought, and he says, go get water. So three times he sends them to get these big buckets of water, and they fill the trench with water. And basically what he does, he says, God, show them that you're real. Show them that you are the God of Israel. Show them that you are the one true God. And wouldn't you know it, fire comes from heaven. And the Bible says it doesn't just, it doesn't just accept the sacrifice of the bull, and it burned up the wood, but it burned up the rocks. It burned up all the water in the trench. It burned up the sand. It singed the ground that the altar was on. Literally, the fire from heaven took everything. And Jezebel was furious. And Elijah said, we can't let this stuff going on with Baal happen anymore. And so what what he did is he had all the prophets of Baal gathered up and brought down to the Kishon River. And he had them all killed because their false religion wasn't going to go any further. And Jezebel still wasn't. And now she was really angry. And she goes to Elijah And she says, you know what? The gods will make it just the same for me, what you've done to my prophets, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of theirs, meaning I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take your life from you. Now, there's a lot more to this story. We're going to hit it on Wednesday night. We're going to dive deep into this one and cover a lot more ground than what we just did there. But at this point, Elijah should be on this spiritual high. Not only is he literally on a mountaintop, God has just delivered a mountaintop experience. There's two problems that Elijah should have with her plan. The first one is, Baal has just proven himself to not be real. He ignored them. He couldn't even send lightning, which they believed he was responsible for. Baal doesn't exist. God just proved that. The second thing is, 
Elijah immediately, rather than confronting her with the power of God, immediately begins to think, woe is me. I'm going to die. I'm the only one left. I'm, it's all over. So in 1 Kings 19.3, it says, Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. Jezebel had a reputation. She was cruel. God had a reputation. He was powerful. And at this point, Elijah chose fear, not God. He decides to run his race all the way on his own. And for 40 days, he runs through the desert. What's amazing is that for 40 days, God provided food and water for him so that he didn't die in the desert. And where Elijah chose to run to is interesting. He he ran to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. He's running from Elijah, so he runs away from God in a sense, but then he runs to God because he knew the only hope that he had was God. And he gets there and he hides in a cave. And what what God says to him is, you know, Elijah, what are you doing? What, what, What is wrong with you? And he does the woe is me. I'm the only one left. She's going to kill me, blah, 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 blah. And God says, well, get ready because I'm going to pass before you. And so three natural events, three, three occurrences happened that they would have attributed to Baal bringing those events happen. And, and Elijah knows God's not in those. But then there's this silence, this, this deafening silence that happens. And Elijah says, okay, that's God. And so he goes out and he faces God and he has this conversation with him. And he continues to whine. And God basically says, you know what, Elijah, if if that's all that you see, if that's all that you know, that's fine. And in chapters 19, verse 15, then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. But when you go, anoint Elisha as prophet after you. See, Elijah's call wasn't done. It's just that Elijah was out of the race. So God continued the call through someone else. But the thing about it that strikes me is, Elijah told to run away from God rather than to run to God. And so God says, you know what? I'll let you have what you want. Go home. You think it's comfortable back there? Go the way you came. Go back to the ground that you know, to the life that you know. Go to where I don't ask so much from you, but you're going on your own, Elijah. Take the prophet, the mantle of prophet, the cloak, the, the calling of prophet off of yourself and give it to Elijah. Here's the thing. No matter how bad your life gets, You don't want to run so far away from God that God says, fine, then go back to what you're comfortable with. Because what are the things that we're comfortable with? We're comfortable with our money. We're comfortable with our retirement portfolios, maybe our jobs, our houses. We're comfortable with the stuff that God gives us to steward. And Elijah says, I just just want to go. And so God says, let him. And, And you don't want God to say, go back to where you came from because it might feel like that life that you used to live, that God delivered you from, was safe. Believe you me, it is nothing like the life that God is calling you to. So Elijah goes and finds Elisha. And he tells him what's going on and that he's going to pass the mantle of prophet. Is there anything I can do? And Elisha says, yep, do this. And it shows that God's power is on Elijah, but it's being transferred to Elisha. But when he meets him, it's an interesting thing because Elisha is at work. He's got 12 pair of oxen, it says, and he's in the field with the plow with the last pair. For a man to have 12 pair of oxen working a field meant that he had a lot of land and a lot of money. And God has Elijah have this conversation, and Elijah does does a good job because he wants to go back. He wants to go back home. He wants to go backwards in his life, not forwards with God. 
And Elijah understands, well, let me go do a couple things before I go. And Elijah says, okay. He comes back, and what Elijah does next, he slaughters his two oxen, and he tears apart the plow, and he puts the oxen on top of the plow, and he burns it, and he roasts the oxen, and he gave them away to the village. Seems like an extreme thing, but let me tell you what happened. Elisha says, I understand the call that God has. I believe you, Elijah. I'm literally going to burn. In burning my oxen and my plow, I am burning the bridge back to this life. I'm burning my way home. The only place that I'm going forward from here is forward with God. He was all in for the call on his life. And God knew in that moment that Elisha's commitment was everything that he had. God's grace and God's mercy didn't part from Elijah. You have to read and get the end of the story of his life. It's pretty interesting. But then Elijah goes on and has this incredible life as a prophet. Makes me think about our world. Many of us have children. For those of us who are old enough but do not have children, we are concerned about the world that young people are growing up in. Am I right? It isn't going to be like what we had. Maybe you had it rough because you made some choices, but the world is changing. It's changing fast. We're concerned about the world the next generation is going to inherit, the world that we're passing along to them, and we should be. And so here's the part that's going to get a little bit tough. It's time for some God's truth, okay? It's decision time. I don't say that lightly. I mean it with all of my heart. It's decision time. Who is Jesus to you? Because the world is pressing in on you and your families like it has never pressed in on it before. Who is Jesus to you? The answer to that question is going to define everything that happens for you moving forward. Back in the good old days, it was still the most important question. Today, it is more important than ever in a very, very literal sense. It's decision time. Listen to the news. It talks about wars and rumors of wars, of disasters that I'm sorry, they're far too connected and they're far too coordinated to just be chance. And it's time to figure out who Jesus is to you. It's important because the world is asking. Not directly yet, but it will. And God is waiting. Who is Jesus to you? And then it's time to decide... What are you going to do about that decision? See, in America today and in our world, we are essentially being asked to choose, are we going to trust the word of a 67-year-old computer programmer become billionaire who is a self-proclaimed epidemiologist and savior of the world? Or are we going to trust Jesus? It's as simple as that. It's decision time, folks. So you can live in the fear that is being created and perpetuated and communicated by the billionaire power brokers in our world, or you can live in the promise of an eternity with Jesus. It's decision time. And maybe you've skated along till now, say, I'll figure it out later. I don't know that we've got a lot of later left. See, what you believe in, talking about legacy, what you believe in and what you pour your life into and what you put your money into, you will pass on to those who come behind you. If it's children, they're watching. They're listening. They're paying attention. If it's people at work who don't know Jesus, they're watching. They're listening. They're paying attention. And it's decision time. 
I've said many times in the, in the 25 years that I have been preaching, and it's never been more true than it is at this moment today. The Bible is one generation away from being ignored and deemed irrelevant and dismissed completely. I believe that that generation is on earth. What are we going to do about it? It's decision time. What does that book mean to you? We are living in a generation that is actively trying to replace the Word of God with the demands and the foolishness of the mob. And I use the word mob because that's how they act. I don't care what the agenda or the cause is. They act like a mob with disregard for life and property. It's not the way that Jesus works. What you believe in, what gets your time, your attention, what gets your money, becomes your legacy. You will be known for the things that mattered to you. Think back to the last time or every time you've ever been to a funeral or a memorial service or a celebration of life. There wasn't a lot of talk spent on the job and all the hours at work and what kind of car they drove and the house they lived in. You know what they talked about? What did they do with their life and what did they leave behind? That's what matters. When we're gone, that's what people are going to pay attention to. What you believe in will become your legacy. You know the power of God. You're here because something about believing in the Almighty drew you to this place at this time today. You might not believe in Jesus as your Savior. You might not be living with Him as the Lord of your life. But, but you acknowledge the reality of the existence of God. So maybe today is your divine appointment that God has set for you to acknowledge and accept Him for who He is and to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus who gave His life for you. See, here's the problem with Elijah. He knew the power of God. He had been a front seat, front row witness to it. But he didn't live in the presence of God. We know that because he ran from God. And so the question is, are you running from God or are you running to God? Are you building a life legacy for God or are you building a life legacy for you? Is it your decision to run to or from, to act or to not act? will have repercussions on you and other people in the future. Your willingness to be a disciple and to pass along what you know to someone else will have eternal effects on your life and on theirs. But we have to make the decision to do it. Your legacy, both in how you live and what you give, will be how you are remembered. That's what people talk about when we're gone. The only way that you can really make a difference when you're gone is to live a life that matters now. See, we, we think we can do all of this stuff when, we're, when our life is over and we're home with Jesus. But at the end of the day, our relationship with him is going to be every bit as important to the next generation as it is to us. Your faith and your generosity live on in the lives of new believers who come along after we're gone. Just think for a moment, if we as a church, if we as Christians say, you know what? No. We gather on Sunday morning for us. We take care of our kids. We're worried about our family. We're not worried. Let them figure it out. The rest of the world can have it on their own. They can figure it out for themselves. If we don't teach and tell and show the young people around us with our lives, with our faith, with our finances, what God means to us, the world around us will show them that there is no God. 
that the only God that exists, small g, is what they believe is true, whatever they want that they should have, whatever their whim or their desire of the moment is. And now I said it's decision time. Here's the deal. Dads, all of you men, and I take this seriously because I'm, I'm a guy who's a dad. Today, right now, in this moment, more than any other day in your life, your children need you. Your wife needs you. Your family needs you. Because for 20 years, we've been in America that has been undermining the role of dads and families. And the result is a lot of guys have just decided, I'm going to have babies, but I'm not going to have a family. Your family needs you, men. If you're here and and you are with your kids this morning, understand that they are a God-given gift to you that is a part of your legacy. But we need to live and treat them that way. Because the thing is, we want to create our own safety net. We want to build our life and our career and our bank account. And we want to try to hold on to our oxen and plows like, like Elisha was willing to give up. But when we die, there's nothing left of those for us. We think that if we keep hold on to the things that keep us planted and make us feel secure, rather than being all in for God, somehow we're doing the favor to the world and our families instead of investing ahead for the future of people who we're called to love, even if we haven't met them. Twelve and a half years ago, seven of us met in a coffee shop, and we prayed for you. Ninety-eight percent of you we didn't know. We'd never met you. But we prayed that if God was really calling this church into existence, that God would bring us people. He would entrust to us His most precious possession, and that's human souls. And we began praying for you. Not by name, because we didn't know your names, but we knew that God did. Twelve and a half years ago, we started praying, and as we've grown, that prayer has continued. So the open door exists, and the future that God is calling us to hospitality and generosity and never shying away from the truth of God's word for the sake of the kingdom of God. We get to pass along this baton of faith to a generation that hasn't even been born yet, to people we haven't met. You hear us talk about the capital campaign. Why do we need it? I've heard all the, the questions, and they're all good questions. Why do we need so much land? Why do we need so much building? Because God has a plan and a call and a purpose for us. Our heart around here is different than a lot of other churches. We don't exist just to call it a nice place for us to gather. We exist to reach people who don't know Jesus yet. We exist to help fill heaven. And you know what? That takes intentionality. It takes decisions. It takes hard decisions because sometimes we have to say no to things we'd really like to do. But we're not called to them. And it takes finances. It takes hearts of people who realize that legacy begins now and actually is revealed in people you'll likely never meet. So we get this opportunity to pass the baton of faith onto this new generation, to people we haven't met. But you know what? Just like 12 and a half years ago, Jesus knows their name. Jesus has a plan in place for them to come to this place through all of you to meet him and for him to change their life in a radical eternity altering way. So I said it's decision time, folks. Here's the decision. Are you willing to be a part of God's plan for your life? I'm glad that you chose to be a part of this church. If you're a first-time visitor, you're watching us for the first time, you know a lot about who we are now. But are you willing to be a part of God's plan for your life?
Because God's plan for your life isn't to sit along the sidelines and wait for someone else to do the hard work. God called all of us into this thing to do together. You can choose to be Elisha, or excuse me, you can choose to be Elijah, and to run away and to go back to what's comfortable. To rely on the things that you have earned and built and created that you feel safe in. Or you can choose to be Elijah, Elisha. And you can burn the bridge to your old life and say, God, I don't know where we're going, but I'm going with you. It's decision time and the choice is yours. Let's pray. God, thank you for this place. Thank you for people who are of such a like heart, God. Um, churches like ours don't survive without people who are worried about other people, who have a godly concern for those who don't know Jesus. God, we're not shy about what we're about. We're not shy about what we believe in. Love Jesus, love people, teach people to love Jesus. It's pretty simple. But accomplishing that isn't. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes finances. But God, all of those things you have already given to us. It's a matter of our priorities. It's a matter of how we decide to use them. Do we invest in the comforts of our life? Or do we invest in the eternities of people whose names you know, but who we've never met? God, all I ask is that your Holy Spirit would work on us, work on our hearts, our minds, take away our excuses, and just get us right down to our real priorities. And God, in, in your universe, the highest priority that you have is people. God, help make people our highest priority as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Finally, here's my last thought for you. You've all got batons. You've all been handed some. Some are financial. Some are knowledge. Some are experience. Some are, are trades or, or job-specific abilities. And a lot of people say, well, I don't really have anything to pass on. I'm not, really gonna, I'm not worried about my legacy. I'm going to break it down as simple as this, okay? I'm serious when I say, man, your kids need you. Moms, your kids need you too. Grandmas and grandpas, they need you. But here's the deal. If you think that you get away and not have to worry about a legacy, if you have a name, you will have a legacy. You will be remembered for something. And we have this life, and however much time we have left to live it, to consider and to plan and to pour into the legacy that we leave behind. Think about who it is you're passing the baton to and what it is that you're passing.